0: Hi, this is Jorn Klubian, Disney animator and storyboard artist, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock
1: Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Go and Dave Bossert.
2: Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Skull Rock Podcast, where every week we talk all things Disney, pop culture, and so much more. And uh, I- I'm so glad you decided to join us today. We're going to have a great show for you. We've got some behind-the-scenes stuff. We've got a great interview. We've got some Disney news that uh, also encompasses Marvel, Star Wars, and of course the Disney parks. My name is Al John Go. I am a lover of all things Disney. And you can email me at aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com.
0: And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now we are on and can be found on Amazon Music and Audible. Look, uh, I, I mean, this is I think this is incredible. Um, like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. and you can also email me at Dave at
2: skullrockpodcast dot com. Al John, how are you? Oh, I am wonderful. Thanks for asking. I hope you're ha- I hope you had a great week.
0: I, I did. And you know, the funny thing is, is that now that we're on Amazon music and audible, I've walked into my office several yeah. times this week mm-hmm. and said, Alexa, Play the Skull Rock podcast. I'm whispering because I don't want her to just click on right now. Uh, But uh, I I just thought it was fantastic because as soon as I said that, all of a sudden I heard our podcast coming out of my uh, Echo. It's the uh, My Amazon Echo, which was fantastic. Uh, By the way, um, you know, we got a really nice note. And I got to read this out, John, if if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, This comes from Jenna. And she, she, she posted a comment uh, on my Facebook page. She said, I absolutely love your podcast, Dave. Many thanks to you and John for putting these amazing interviews together for us to enjoy. I've learned so much and can't wait for each new episode. I mean, oh. I thought, wow, that, what a great comment. It's always nice to get that kind of feedback. And, uh, and I got to say, thank you, Jenna, for that.
2: That is awesome. I love getting that kind of feedback. And anytime, well, you know, it's great. I mean, you're a creative, I'm a creative, and it's it's really great to get that kind of feedback from our fans out there that listen to the show and thank you so much for writing and uh, I I hope that everyone gets out there and wherever you find your podcast and leave us those reviews and leave us that and shoot us a screenshot and we'll read your your message on air or just send us a note. Um, we do appreciate every single one of you that listen every week. This is, it's because of you that we do this absolutely absolutely yeah. so we
0: got a we got a lot going on today we've got uh we've got uh rob minkoff who's a director uh, many of you may know him from as a co-director of the lion king but he's done so much more and we're gonna be talking to him in a little while awesome. he's in the green room uh munching on the uh, snacks <laughs> and uh relaxing yes. uh, and uh, we've got some business to take care of
2: absolutely I was gonna say uh first and foremost I hope you have had a great week and had a great uh, Mother's Day. Was it last week? Gosh, yeah, was already time, a, a week ago. Yeah, the time flies, I tell you, and uh, and the time is flying uh, so quickly. I just can't believe it. I can't believe that um, people are coming back to some normalcy. Either oh, I, know. I know we're going to talk about yeah. that in the news, but I went to our local grocery store, and of course, the mask mandate had been lifted. And it was just a weird, weird feeling. And in in some respects, it felt good. In some respects, it felt weird. I know that people Mm. feel kind of odd about that. And we attended, Dave, for the first time. I didn't think I was going to talk about it, but I might as well. Um, A foster parents um, kind of night out hosted by our local, there was a local church that did that. Awesome. And it's the first time Kristen and I, dropped off the kids and attended a dinner without the kids. It's the first wow. time. It was so bizarre and to 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 find that people didn't have masks on and it was just surreal. It was surreal. That was I don't know, I don't know. It's just so weird.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's going to be this transition back to normalcy where we all do feel uncomfortable if we don't have a mask on, uh, even with these these evolving mask mandates. Yeah, um, I have to tell you, I, I'm just going to continue wearing a mask for a while until I feel comfortable enough to just remove it.
2: Oh, of course, you know, and everybody yeah. should feel and do what they feel is best to protect themselves and their family, you know, no yeah. worries. But I, I'm thinking to myself, it's just it's just kind of, um I don't know. It's just a, uh, it, it's a, it's a weird experience. It's just weird. And I think it's going to take me and especially seeing people that you've only seen their eyes during this whole time. Like there's a, there's a bunch of people that have come into my life where I've either interacted only via video conference calls like zoom or, or, or just in person, but with their mask on. So when I found Found that they remove their mask I'm like, I, I don't know who you are <laughs> It's just so weird I don't know, it's just odd But oh, yeah. anyway, I know we'll get into that But uh, let's get into Some news uh, And I was going to uh, fire up some news here Oh yes, I remember now The button <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast,
1: ripped from the headlines It's Skull Rock Podcast Headline
2: news Alright, well, speaking of masks, Dave You know Disney World says masks are now optional in outdoor common areas, this according to Deadline, and it's updated their health and safety guidelines, announcing that masks are optional to guests on pool decks in outdoor common areas. Changes in masking requirements in keeping with those of the CDC are fully outlined in the Orlando, Florida theme parks website, but at the moment, masks are still required to be worn by guests of two and up upon entering throughout all attractions. In other words, while masks may be taken off while actively eating and drinking or while stationary outdoors, they must be worn inside all theaters or transportation um, and all the indoor locations and restaurants um, when they're not eating. So um, still a little bit of progress there. But I, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's
0: slowly evolving. It's slowly, you know, it's, it's going to change over uh, over the coming months. And, uh, I, you know, look, out here in California, uh, it's going to be somewhat back to normal by June
2: 15th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that uh, I think the CDC's announcement, uh, it said that fully vaccinated individuals can go without masks, both indoors and outdoors, without need for social distancing. Uh, I get that. And I think, too, um, you know, I may have mentioned that my wife, Kristen, is a kidney transplant patient. And, um, you know, obviously, we still need to be very vigilant. You know, yeah. she still, you know, is, is a very vulnerable um, part of the society with her compromised immune system. But, hey, you know what? This is a sign that, you know, most of the people that wanted to get vaccinated or getting vaccinated or have gotten vaccinated and, um, you know... Hopefully, more uh, better times are coming.
0: And, and these guidelines are based on the honor system. You know, how, how do they know somebody's vaccinated or no. not vaccinated? No, nobody knows. You know, you have to be honest about it.
2: Are you, are, are you, you guys doing you know, incentives over there
0: to get people vaxed? Uh, I, I'm not sure if they've started doing incentives, but like I said last week, Al John, if they start paying a hundred dollars for people to get vaccinated, make it retroactive yeah. to everybody who's already been vaccinated. Yeah, backdate
2: that. You know, I think here I think here in Nashville, this is no joke. And I I, I just I just caught this um this this little segment on our local news in Nashville there was like shots for shots. So if you go to a bar downtown Nashville, if you show your vaccination card, you could get a free shot. And I'm like, okay. whoa, all right. <laughs> all right, I could get some uh, I could get some nice yeah. tequila up in there. But, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's the most bizarre Good. thing. You know, you wake up and you re- yeah. you listen to the news or you watch the news as you're getting ready for work. And I'm sitting there going shot for shot. What could that possibly? Oh, it's Nashville. <laughs> uh, I gotta get it. They're trying to get people back to downtown. Okay. Wow. I get it.
0: Look, as, as things start opening up, I, I, I think that these things are going to change fast and furiously. I mean, our, our next headline here is Hamilton, Lion King, and Wicked yeah. Are have set their Broadway returns, that's according exciting.
2: to the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah.
0: September 14th.
2: Wow. You know, that's exciting. Broadway's opening. It's exciting. There's a whole industry people it's not just the stage people, you've got stagecraft, you've got you know the the local businesses. you've got just everybody that supports Broadway, which I'm so glad is coming back and I know New York has been starving for, uh, you know, for that type of entertainment to come back. I mean that is what what is part of the New York culture is yeah. all of those Broadway uh, productions. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: I, I actually, I, I read one article uh, that that stated over 100,000 jobs involved with uh, Broadway shows in, mm. uh, in New York City.
2: Absolutely. I have yeah. to tell you, you know, I was so happy during the pandemic that Disney Plus decided to put Hamilton on Disney Plus because mm-hmm. it's such a fun show. I mean, it's such a great show and I'm glad for Lion King and Wicked. I I hope that everyone has a reinvigorated spirit about Broadway and watching plays as a, you know, as a family, but around the entire United States, around the world. I mean, it's just such a great art form. So, uh, yeah, tickets are available through Ticketmaster. So get your tickets Mm -hmm. now so uh, you don't miss out. Uh, This is going to be amazing. But, year. you know, it's it's crazy that it's September 14th because, you know, before
0: the holidays this past, uh, um, you know, Christmas, New Year's, uh, I had hear, I heard rumblings that it was going to be March, April. Yeah, uh, that they'd be opening. Uh, and Same. boy, wow, it's it's just craziness.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, it is. It is. But, but uh, everything's hey.
0: changing, which brings us to our next story, Al, John.
2: So what do you think about this? According to Variety, uh, we want they had said oh, rest in peace uh, to the 90-day theatrical window. Um, and that is according to Disney's announcement that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and Ryan Reynolds' action comedy Free Guy, which uh, I look forward to seeing, would screen in theaters for 45 days before landing on home entertainment. Um, and Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, had said the post-pandemic approach of rolling out movies in theaters to Disney Plus has relatively um, what's the fluid nature of the recovery is kind of uh, shortened.
0: Yeah. Is that right? But, yeah, but you know something? here. Here's the thing. When a movie releases, if it releases in the theaters and on a streaming platform uh, day and date, That gives that gives the consumer the choice. Uh, And I think that's a great thing. And that means that the movie theaters, as I've been saying all along, have to step it up and make their experience better. They have to make their experience a destination for the consumer to say, hey, that movie's opening today. I don't want to watch it in my living room. I want to go to the theater and see it with an audience. And I want to see it on a giant screen. That's what the theater owners have to do. They have to step up and make it a better experience than it is. Absolutely.
2: Um, You know, I I don't understand how people... Um, or why people bag on those direct-to-consumer platforms like you know HBO Max or Disney Plus and saying I'm not going to pay thirty dollars for this. I'm like you don't have to pay. You don't have to pay. In fact, you don't have to pay for Disney Plus if you don't want to. You don't. Right. You can wait. You yeah. can wait two years and wait after every one of those services run its course, and then you can get it on IMDb or YouTube or whatever with commercials or whatever you want. I, you know, yeah. It's network you vote, television. Yeah, you vote for your. You know, Disney's making us do this. Like I, I just none find all those arguments not. invalid. It's like if right. you want to see things early, then so be it. You know, use your wallet and, and do it. If if not, then you'll just wait like everyone else to get it on Disney Plus, you know, after however many months and you just get over it.
0: Anyway. Yeah. And, and you know something? I, I have to say this uh, this next story, though, uh, Star Wars Celebration 2022 dates are being moved. You're the Star Wars. You're the big Star Wars fan. What's going
2: on here? Well, it just seems to me like uh, they just want to get out there and put a bunch of stuff in front of you. You know, There are just, two ways to yeah, sell your yeah, house. That's right. The easiest way oh, is selling it so. to Open
3: Door. All Why? you have to do is go
2: to That's going to get out of there. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I mean it's just one of those events. I guess Comic-Cons are coming back in big uh, big ways like a uh, celebration. The dates have been um the new dates Over there in anaheim that's where they're going to do it as of may 26th through may 29th of 2022 um i guess that's to coincide a lot with uh, some of the release of um, star wars movies historically you know usually may the 4th is what they they deem as star wars day and they do a lot of announcements Mm -hmm. but you know uh, usually it's later on in the may to kick off the summer movie season is when they usually have those uh, blockbuster movies come out Uh, (laughs) at least they had been in the prequel trilogy era so Hey, you know, that's not a big, it's not a big thing, but I'm sure they have a lot to talk about. Yeah. You know,
0: well, you know, there's just so much going on. I mean, it's crazy.
2: Well, I tell you what else is going on is that we're almost ready for Avengers Campus to open. Uh, It's just a few more weeks away. And have you seen the shawarma cart? no the Shwarma palace so uh, what's really cool is you know they have the different places to eat there on the avengers campus there at disneyland resort and what i'm excited about is all the food right we always love the food they have the Pims. um you know, the Pim's Test Kitchen, where uh, Ant Man and the Wasp get to show you about all the innovations of them making huge uh, food. Like, so you go inside, and there's like oversized, it's like, honey, I shrunk the audience. You know, it's crazy. They have these oversized soda. Oh, soda things and people just get unlimited amounts of soda and you've got big pretzels of course and then you have a big chicken sandwich with a little bun <laughs> you know <laughs> a big chicken. but they have the swarm palace and it's got a lot of different easter eggs if you check out the instagram um you'll be able to see the Swarm palace which harkens all the way back to avengers the very first avengers movie uh, almost 10 years ago and um You'll get to see all the references to all the MCU films. And they say that not only is the shawarma palace a great place for little Easter eggs, but this, the storytelling for Avengers is actually in its own little pocket. It doesn't necessarily exist. It references things that happen in the MCU, but because Iron Man is still alive and black Panther and everything like that, everybody's still there. uh, You'll see some characters, but they all intermingle with each other and, into their own storylines. so um, it's a it's a little bit different place. But I'm looking forward to seeing the Avengers Campus open up here at the end of the month.
0: Fantastic! Very cool. Uh, I think. I, look, I'm looking forward to it all opening up uh, by the end of the month. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I know we talk a lot about that's true. I know we talk about um, uh, pop culture here, and I just have to mention that uh, Kevin Smith needs to get a rounding uh, a standing ovation for bringing back He Man and the Masters of the Universe. Uh, at, on netflix it looks very cool it's a sequel to the original filmation animation series i know dave a lot of your friends worked on uh, He-Man, yeah. uh back in filmation days and this yeah. has a very anime kind of style which i love so um, i think fans will will dig this kind of a uh, sequel to the series and kudos for uh, kevin smith for once again you know flexing his muscles and and Breathing new life into this new franchise. I don't know if you've seen anything about this uh, Masters of the Universe. Dave.
0: No, I, I, I've only seen some still images, and uh, and and it looks uh, like he's he's has stepped it up, if you will. Um, you know, just from a, a animation art standpoint
2: i think it's really cool once again netflix has been great bringing back a series like she-ra bringing back uh, voltron and the defenders of the universe so bringing back uh, he-man is super cool so kudos to kevin smith you can uh, check it out on netflix so dave awesome we're I'm, i'm ready for your guest absolutely i think we should go to it
1: skull rock podcast interview time
0: well, Al, John, as promised, we've got a great guest, uh, Rob Minkoff. Uh, he's an old Cal Arshen classmate of mine. Uh, he worked at Disney. Uh, he worked on The Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, uh, Little Mermaid. He co-directed The Lion King. He went on to direct Stuart Little, The Haunted Mansion, uh, Mr. Peabody and Schre- I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and we can't possibly cover this guy's career in an hour. But I want to welcome Rob Minkoff to the show Welcome Rob, it's great to see you Thank you so much, it's, uh, it's great to be seen
1: <laughs> um, I have to, I, you know, I just have to have one thing Because I have to put in a little plug yeah. For my latest film, which I'm just, I am just completed animation On a new movie called Blazing Samurai
0: yeah. Which is
1: actually based on Blazing Saddles all right. And uh, except in this case, it's it's going to be a movie for, for, you know, the whole family, which is a little surprising considering what Blazing Saddles was. But <laughs> it's going to be for the whole family because now it's about a dog that becomes a samurai in a world of cats. Oh, that and is so, awesome. <laughs> so they 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 hate him because he's a dog. And, uh, I love it. Uh, but we've got an amazing cast. We have uh, Ricky Gervais playing uh, the villain, uh, the part that Harvey Corman played. We've got Samuel Jackson playing... Uh, the fa- a fallen samurai who comes out of retirement to train the dog. Uh, uh, and the dog is being played by um, Michael Sarah. So we've got a really a fantastic cast. Awesome. awesome. When is that anyway. when is that,
0: set, when's that set for release?
1: Uh, great question. You know, because of the pandemic and theaters closing, it's kind of thrown a little bit of a curveball at us. Mm. And so we haven't quite figured out when, um you know when and where but uh but that should be coming up uh, very shortly i'm actually going up to skywalker ranch next week uh to do the final mix awesome. so that's going to be fun too cuz i've i've only i visited there once years and years and years ago but i've never worked there so this is going to be kind of cool for me.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Well, be, before we talk even more about that, which we will do, do later in the show, I, I I want to kind of step back for a second and and just say, how'd you get here? I, I mean, how did this start <laughs> for you? I we we had you, by the way, we had your good friend Kirk Wise on uh, a, a while ago, and and Kirk kind of filled us in on the whole high school days up in Palo Alto and everything. But yeah. but you you went to Cal Arts and. Yeah. Uh, and and from Cal Arts, you got plucked out to work at Disney, right? Sure. Well, I could
1: give you a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, add to what Kirk said. I, d- I don't, um, well, if I, if I repeat anything, sorry. But, um, you know, um, when I was a kid growing up, obviously, you know, it was a total, like, for all of us or some, for many of us who are old enough, uh, it was a totally different universe in terms of what was available, right? I mean, we only had what was on television or what was in a movie theater, uh, you couldn't, no no video, no DVD, no, no you know, none of that. Um, and so, you know, there was always just this, the little bits and pieces that you could find were so exciting. And I remember going to my dad's work, which was an audio visual center in Palo Alto, California. And he had this great little uh, Super 8 uh, film editor, and he had a couple of reels of animation. One was Uh, The fight scene from Sleeping Beauty at the end when uh, the prince goes and battles the dragon. And I, I would watch this like, you know, just endlessly and just scroll through it and watch the animation go. And I was so fascinated by it. It was just completely captivating. And then the other reel was like a black and white Uh, Mighty Mouse. And that was another one you know, with Mighty Mouse beating up cats. So uh, that really planted the seed of of loving animation Uh, when I was really young. And then of course met Kirk. uh, Kirk and I met doing children's theater. So, uh, but the crazy thing that happened to me uh, when, you know, we were actually, I think doing that production, which was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which was, you know, kind of ironic, but (laughs) I got asked to babysit these two sisters uh, named Jenny and Emily Shapiro. And I went over to their house one night and uh, I saw on their coffee table, this incredible book with Mickey Mouse on the cover. And the book was called The Art of Walt Disney. And I, I cracked it open and looked through, I couldn't even believe it. I mean, at the time, it's just hard to understand, I think for people today, how little was available because there was probably only about five books, five books written about animation at the time. So this was just like an incredible thing to see. And I turned to them. I said, where did you get this book? And they said, our uncle wrote it. Your (laughs) uncle wrote it. They said, yeah, our uncle is Christopher Finch. I was like, wow, that's so cool. And I went home and I told my parents, I said, you got, I got to get this book. And so for my next birthday, it was 1977. So I was 15 years old. Uh, My parents gave it to me for my birthday and uh, my dad wrote a really beautiful inscription in the book. Um, And, and that stayed with me. And so later, I think even then when Kirk said, Hey, there's a school called CalArts, we, the two of us animated a short together. And then, and then I used it because Kirk's a year younger than me. I used it first for the portfolio and then got in, got accepted to CalArts. And that was in 1980. So that was the year, Dave, you were there too. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. That was the year we both started at CalArts.
1: And what was so crazy is I remember going there and meeting everybody. And, you know, it was like a kind of a crazy thing to meet such a small group of people that were sort of the true believers, right? The people who really loved animation enough that even though at the time there was really not that much going on and even what was going on was not that interesting or that exciting, you know, we still saw this potential, this, you know, this, that that was a great art form and that, you know, that so much could be done with it, but, you know, but there were no guarantees about that. And so when we started there, I remember it really being a mixed bag, you know, going there was so exciting to meet people like Jack Hanna, you know, people who had directed, you know, he was the director of all the, you know, Donald Duck shorts. And I'm sure you've covered this in many podcasts, but. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, but I mean,
0: it, it's fine to for, to repeat some of this. T. Hee, Elmer Plummer, uh, yeah. Ken Anderson, uh, or Ken O'Connor. It was, it was Ken Anderson. Ken O'Connor. Ken, Ken O'Connor, O'Connor was there yeah. the
1: year before. I think he, he retired the year before we got there. Right, right. It was a big disappointment yeah, because I yeah. remember seeing, you know, some of the work that was done by students who had taken from him and yeah. hearing the students' stories about how amazing, he was and going, ah, you know, we missed out, but we had, but uh, the design teacher that everyone of course uh, had, who made such a big impact on everyone was Bill Moore, who uh, uh, really, I think, you know, defined for so many people uh, uh, so much. I mean, I was so influential. It's really incredible. But, um, but it was kind of a mixed bag because, you know, we were meeting all these people who are, were our heroes, you know, and, and yet the industry itself was kind of in this very bad place you know was sort of at the at the at the the nader you know
0: of it. it it really was it was it was at the bottom of a deep valley at that point because there had been a major strike uh with the animation uh, uh industry uh a few years before us uh before we entered cal arts a lot of the work that was being done in los angeles went overseas if you remember all the saturday morning stuff just fled to overseas studios So it really was kind of a a dark time. And CalArts was one of the few uh, animation programs out there. Uh, You had CalArts, Sheridan, you had School of Visual Arts in New York City. Yeah. So very
1: little, you know, very little was going on, but there was glimmers of hope, you know, things would. Richard Williams was doing stuff that was cool. And, you know, you'd you'd end up meeting people who worked on projects with him and thinking that that was kind of amazing because he was a similar kind of guy. You know, he was, he came along, you know not at the at the at the at the golden he wasn't in the golden age particularly he was at the end and, but he didn't uh he didn't let that stop him and i think we all felt a little bit the same way which was we were really in a way we were be, we were being pioneers in a way right i mean animation had been this art form that was developed Uh, Over a long period of time, but it had fallen into kind of an abyss, you know. It's sort of so we we were there to try to revive it, you know, to try to find it and pull it back out of the, you know, from the brink. Uh, And what's amazing is that it it actually happened, right? It it actually worked because my recollection was that at the time it, it felt like there was no guarantees that it would happen. Like maybe it wouldn't work. I remember. Before I actually went to Cal Arts, um, my uncle, my mom's brother, who lives uh, in Los Angeles, lived in Los Angeles. He actually passed away just about a year ago. But um, my mom grew up in Los Angeles and then met my dad here and then moved back to Palo Alto. And but I, I uh, my my uncle, who was a writer and a writing teacher at USC, um, you know, knew I was interested in animation and interested in going to Cal Arts, and he goes, "Oh, you know, my friend works at Filmation, uh, and and you should come down and." come and meet him and we'll go to lunch with him. And I was like, yeah, that'll be great. We'll go to lunch. So I remember going before going to CalArts in the summer and it was, for some reason, it was a rainy day. And I remember driving out to the Filmation Studios and it was so depressing. I mean, oh my God, going into the studio. First of all, there was almost nobody there, I guess, at lunch. It was just like almost empty. And they were working, I think, on on He-Man or on Tarzan or I don't yeah. know what they were working it on been, but it would have been those shows yeah and, and I remember like seeing the, the artwork and just being like oh my god this is it ain't it ain't Disney it ain't it ain't the heyday it ain't it ain't the art of Walt Disney book that I had been looking at going <laughs> look at how amazing all this artwork is and I was like have I made a terrible
0: mistake I was gonna what say I you, really you were qu- you were questioning yourself weren't you totally I was like god this could be
1: oh my god like if this is the state of the business, do I really want to get involved? Like this, <laughs> this could be terrible. So, uh, so I still didn't let that stop me, but it, it certainly was a little bit of a sobering moment. And I, and then, and then, of course, going to Cal Arts, and I remember meeting a guy who I'm sure you remember named Bob Seely. Oh yeah, Bob, Bob Seely, and Bob yeah. was an upperclassman in animation and a funny character. And I remember being in, uh, there was like a a rec area where there was a pool table and I was there with a couple of first year students. And again, it was probably like week one or week two. I don't even think classes had started yet. It was sort of like pre-orientation. So we were all kind of just getting to know people and then Bob was there and he looked at us and he goes, you guys are character animators, aren't you? Like, yeah, how do you know? He goes, I can tell, because you look naive. And, he, and then he was like, he laid it on us. He was like, you don't understand what you're getting yourself into. Like, this is going to be terrible. I'm like, what? He goes, oh, yeah, the teachers, they don't know what they're doing. And they don't teach us. They just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like this whole thing. I was like, oh, my God, this is just awful. So, uh, so it was really, a t- I was like, I can't believe this. But then, uh, uh, you know, then it, it sort of goes on. And you end up meeting people. I remember the very... I think the very, very first person I met at CalArts was Kelly Asbury. And Kelly who yeah. very, very sadly passed away recently. Yeah, last year he passed away. You know what? Yeah, it was very sad. So I was standing, I was, it was, it was, we were in line um, in the big open area in the center of the of the school. Uh, and there were table card tables set up, and everybody was in line basically signing up for classes. You know, you'd have, yeah. to, you'd have to do that. The, the,
0: the main gallery,
1: the main, the main gallery. gallery. And then yeah. Kelly Kelly was standing right in front of me and, you know, he turned and said, what do you, you know, what's your name? And I, I said, and Kelly was always super gregarious, you know, super outgoing and friendly. And mm-hmm. yeah. um, so he asked me what, you know, what I was doing there. And I told him I was, you know, an animation student. And we realized we were both together. We became very uh, very good friends pretty quickly, but then that really um, ended up changing my life in a major, major, major way, because that first year, which you may recall this story, um, um, a bunch of CalArt students heard that there was going to be a tribute to Mel Blanc, the great voice actor of all the mm-hmm. Warner Brothers cartoons. There was gonna be a tribute to him at the Academy Theater in Los Angeles. And so we dro- we managed to get tickets and drove there and and it wasn't that full, but we sat right down front, and then the first row was Chuck Jones, who was the great you know great uh, animation director who created the Roadrunner and Coyote and uh, Pepe Le Pew, and did you know some of the best Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny cartoons. And he was sitting in the front row, and Jeff DeGrandis, one of our other classmates, yeah, was was sitting right behind him, wearing rabbit ears, you know, which which <laughs> is something only Jeff DeGrandis could do. And uh, and, you know, he got to talking to Chuck and then suddenly everybody became aware that Chuck was there and everybody, many people had brought their sketchbooks and gave them to Chuck and he was doing drawings for everybody. I did not have a sketchbook. And I and I think I was at that time too shy even to 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 do it. But uh, but a lot of people got drawings. But later, later, um, Jeff apparently um, had been talking to Chuck and Chuck says, you know what, you got to get in touch with my daughter, Linda. Linda Jones. And, and so he called Linda and had a, had a conversation with her about Chuck and about animation, about Cal arts. And she goes, you know, let me get back to you. And she did. And she said, you know what, uh, Chuck would like to invite you and some friends out to the house. Wow. And so Jeff went to Kelly, I think I didn't know Jeff that well at that point. It was still early in the year, I think. And he went to Kelly and he said, Kelly, who should I invite? And in one of those you know, t- uh, gatherings where everybody would just stand around in the halls and talk and talk and talk, I had said that Chuck Jones was my favorite director. And Kelly had heard that. And so when Jeff asked him, who should I invite? He goes, you know, you should invite Rob because I think, you know, he really, mm. he, he really is a fan of Chuck Jones. And so I got this invitation. And so it was me and Jeff and Kelly and Chris Bailey. Mm-hmm. And so the four of us drove down on, I think, a Sunday morning uh, to Corona Del Mar uh, to meet with Chuck Jones, and we sat with him for a couple of hours. Wow! And heard all of these incredible stories, uh, and just the fact that he was so interested and and I mean he was he was older, although it's a little scary because you know we're all older now, right? So I mean, when I look back, I go, "How old
0: was he?" I think he was like uh, his so late late sixties, maybe. Speak for yourself. <laughs> You know, age is is only a a number, Rob, come on. I know age is only a number, but we're we're in animation, we're youngsters. It's actually very true. That's, (laughs) that is very true.
1: Um, I don't know what it is about animation that keeps you young, but it it does. Um, But, but anyway, so Chuck was in his place, but we we thought of him as he was like a God, you know, he was like a, you know, such an incredible hero. And, you know, we had this great, you know, afternoon talking to him and hearing his stories. And then I think when we were leaving, he said, he said, when you guys come back, you should bring some drawings so I can look them over. And we we're like, Oh my God, wow. Is this, it wasn't it? because we thought maybe it was a one-off and then sure enough, like maybe three or four weeks later, uh, Jeff got a call and Jeff said, Hey guys, uh, Chuck wants us to come over next weekend. And we were like, let's do it. And so we brought our portfolios with our drawings and we showed them at Chuck. Gave us a drawing lesson. It was incredible, That's and he awesome. had studied. Interestingly, um, I think with was it Don Graham was the was yeah the great Don art, Graham art o-
0: o- o- over at Charnard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he so Chuck so there was you know
1: I'm not sure this was part of the Shenard thing, but I guess Don Graham was was tied into the animation business because I yeah. think everybody sort of took lessons from him. Anyway, yeah, yeah. so I remember getting you know Chuck was like saying well when Don would tell us this or he would show us this and this is how you do that and. just amazing so at the end of that first year at school when they had the producer show uh and you know everybody from this industry would come out uh chuck came out and said to the the four of us he goes hey do you guys have dinner jackets we're like yeah he goes because i want you to put them on and meet me tonight for dinner at the beverly wilshire hotel at a restaurant called la bella fontana (laughs) and we drove out there and just had a, a magical experience because you know here it was. Chuck walked in. The maitre d knew who he was, right? Mr Jones, Mr Jones, right this way to your table. And we we're like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Like. If, you, if you're an animator, this can happen to you, you'll be able to go to a restaurant. And he was like, handed $20 bills to everybody. And, they, and he said, bring the champagne and keep it coming. And it was just like, a, for an 18 year old kid, was just unreal. It was like, this is just so amazing. So I'd gone from, in, just in that one year at CalArts, from like the depths of despair, like this is gonna be the worst, most horrible thing in the world, to then, oh my God, this could be so amazing. So. Um, So it was, you you went from the
0: depths of despair to champagne and caviar (laughs) and Beverly Hills.
1: (laughs) High roller table. Yeah. um, High roller. roller, Really kind of, and then that summer, so this was after that year, that summer, there was a guy, I don't know if you remember him, named Steve Zioli. So a guy named Steve Zioli was a student at CalArts. He wasn't in the character animation program. He was in the live action school. And his dad apparently owned a a film company uh, making religious films. And he wanted to do a project which would include animation. And he hired a small group of people and it was like the same group. So Jeff DeGrandis, me, Kelly, Chris, and I think Bob Seely of all people got hired and we were, there was, they had set up some a house in Valencia, which was their production company. And we would drive to the house and we were like, I don't know if that film ever got finished, but I think I did character design. Maybe. I remember doing model sheets of this character.
0: Um, anyway I was just crazy. you know I'm cracking up because you you keep mentioning Jeff DeGrandis and I I have got I made a note that we're going to get him on the show but I the one thing I remember about Jeff DeGrandis and I just want to interject this <laughs> It's that back in those days he came from New Jersey and he had a Chevy Vega that he had dropped a sh- uh, a a, a four twenty seven uh uh engine into a corvette eight cylinder engine into I don't know if you remember that rob uh, but but he had this crazy Chevy Vega with 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 this huge engine in it <laughs> that's so funny
1: that that's that same summer I bought myself a car which was kind of in that in that kind of you know uh category. It was a Cougar XR seven and it had a, a, like a 400, 425 Windsor engine or something. Yeah, was yeah. Was the same kind of thing. And, and I think it was that, I think it, it was either that summer or the following summer. I can't remember, but, Chris Bailey also had an, a fast car. He had a Mustang fastback
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and the two of us were dry. I think we'd been up, I think we were probably up all night doing a project, you know, which is what we would do at CalArts. Yeah. You know, you'd, uh, you'd wait all week and then suddenly you were due for your class. You're like, I got to finish my assignment. And everybody would be in the art <laughs> room like till two, three, four in the morning, like finishing their work. And then like you get two hours of sleep before you have to wake up and go back to school. So Chris and I were in our cars and we were driving over, you know, where College of the Canyons are. Sure, sure, that's Rockwell Canyon. Rockwell Canyon. So we are driving and, you know, it's nobody's around. I mean, it's just a deserted highway and the two of us are there with our giant cars. And suddenly he noses ahead of me and then I kind of <laughs> knows ahead of him. And then he noses ahead of me and then I knows ahead of him. Pretty soon we start flying, flying down the road and we are going fast. We're going over 90 miles an hour. And then suddenly we go over like a rise, both cars, you know, to hit air. And when we land, we can see in front of us, a cop car. Who clearly has seen that we are speeding. (laughs) We both slam on the brakes, but Chris hits the brakes in such a way that his car starts to fishtail. Oh no. no. And then turns actually 180 and smashes into a light post, a big cement light post with the rear of his car. He gets flung from the front seat to the back seat and the light post falls over and the police, the police come back around and stop us. And of course we see is Chris. Okay. He managed to, I mean, he was relatively unscathed. It was kind of bizarre, but they separated us to get our stories, right? Because we weren't together, and they wanted yeah. to make sure. And of course, we both got you know tickets, but the cops were pretty lenient. They were like, "Oh, we're going to give you a, a you know, a, a sixty-five and a sixty zone or something."
0: I don't know what it was. It was, wow.
1: it was very, it was very lenient.
0: Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, let's just jump ahead a little bit because we could we could talk for hours about the Cal Arts days. But uh, but from Cal Arts, you went oh. you went on to Black Cauldron.
1: Well, well, I can give you this little tidbit because it involves the, the strike. So in, it was in 1982 yeah. uh, that, the, that the animation strike was going on and it was the second, our second year at CalArts. The first year at CalArts, Disney hired more people than they'd ever hired in the history of the program. Fifty right. people I think got hired. Yeah. Uh, and every year of the program before that, somebody would get hired to go to Disney if it was yeah. one or two or three people. And then our second year was the first year in the history of the program that nobody got hired. And it was a bit of a devastating shock because suddenly we're like, oh, my God, if that was your kind of dream job, which it was for many of us. And they were like, we didn't hire anybody. And when we we were like, why did they hire anybody? And they said, well, the films that you guys made this year were too dark. Wow. And it was interesting because um, in our very first year at school, sorry, I'm sticking on the CalArts thing, but in our very first year at school. Um, we we went to the Bijou Theater in the first like couple weeks, and they were playing on like constant rotation. Tim Burton's student film, which was a film called "Stock of the Celery Monster," yeah, yeah, which was sort of uh, like a Frankenstein uh, character who brings to life this stock of celery as an evil monster. But it and it, it had every Tim Burton idea and trope that you know, of course, became you know part of pop culture. Eventually, sure. but this was his student film. So nobody really knew who Tim Burton was. Yeah. But we all saw this film and we're like, oh, my God, it was so amazing. It was sort <laughs> of groundbreaking. And then our, in our second year, everybody made these kind of <clears throat> quasi horror films. So the film <laughs> I made was like a, a version of Hansel and Gretel, where these two little kids go into a candy shop and then get lured into the back room by the candy maker, who was like this weird evil villain who's going to like turn these two kids into candy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Conrad made a film about Santa Claus uh, who the elves decide to take revenge on because he works them too hard. You know, he's a taskmaster <laughs> oh, wow. and they're all overworked. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, as they're making their nightly flight, you know, the elves cut the, the harness from the, the 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 reindeer to the sleigh and Santa Claus goes plummeting to his death. <laughs> um, so it was like, that was kind of like the vibe of all the films. And so Disney said, oh, those films are too dark. And so we're like, oh my God, this is terrible. And then Dan Jupe, who was a first year student when yeah. we were second year students, yeah came in and Dan um, had actually gotten to know Eric Larson very well. Cause Dan wrote a letter to Eric Larson. Dan had been really animating very early. Like he was in high school and he was, yeah. he'd become very proficient at animation. I think just on his own, you know, he was really doing pretty incredible stuff. So he got in touch with Eric. Eric said, you need to go to Cal arts. He, he joined, but he'd sort of maintained his friendship with Eric, which we were all very impressed by. And and Dan came in and said, I just heard that that Disney is asking uh, three of us to go to a summer internship so it was me and dan and a guy named glenn kroll who i think was in our class who i've lost touch with i don't know what happened. yeah
0: i i i haven't heard that name
1: in a long time yeah so so we go uh so we start go so for one month in the summer of 1982 dan and glenn and i go to work with eric larson and what was amazing was it was during the strike so everyone from the Disney studio was not in on the lot. They were not in the animation building. They were on yeah. the sidewalk wow. with pickets. And we would drive as like, you know, 18, 19 year olds, like drive onto the lot. And we were like, well, we're not really scabs because we're not really <laughs> We're just men- being mentored. So we go on, go on and we work with Eric for a month. But the place is deserted. And so we can actually wander the halls. And, and sneak into everybody's room, which is what we did. We snuck into everybody's room to look at all the artwork that they were doing for all the movies. So we saw all the pre-production stuff for, for uh, The Black Cauldron. We saw all the, you know, Tim Burton had boards and boards of these amazing, incredible designs for The Black Cauldron. Right. That right. were never used. Yeah. Um, and we saw stuff from uh, the movie that was called Basil of Baker Street at the time, which became known as The Great Mouse Detective. And that was kind of in early development when we were there and- Anyway, it was an incredible thing. So so that was in 1982. In 1983, the following year, um, I was working on a film and it was was a very complicated film and it was all set to verse. And uh, because I'd gotten to know Eric Larson a little bit, both Dan and I went to lunch with him. Mm -hmm. And Eric said about the films we were doing, he said, I just wanna remind you that the only thing that we really care about is performance. I'm like, oh, so we left that lunch and we were driving back and I was like, my film has no performance. <laughs> my <laughs> film has no performance. And I was like, I don't think the film that I'm doing is, is going to get me a job. And like, that was what I wanted more than anything. I was like, yeah. and I was like, I think I, I think I got to do a different film. And it was the six weeks before the producer show. Right, right. And I was like, I'm going to redo my film. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to redo it. I'm going to do a new film, and I'm not going to tell anyone because I know it's going to happen. And it sure enough, it did. So I started working on my new film, and it, you'd go in and you would do the uh, the test in the in the vi- you know the video room. Where, yeah, you know, yeah, you could do the lion lamb, right? You would uh, shoot the, uh, the just, drawings. Just,
0: and- just for our listeners, the lion lamb was a real to real video recorder uh, with a camera attached to it, so you could shoot your pencil tests. Exactly. So,
1: so I was, so I'd go in there to shoot my new film. I think the, the character I had was the same character. So I didn't have to redesign the character it was just a different premise, a very simple premise. So the, the the film was this little kid wearing kind of a Mickey mouse ears hat um, has an ice cream cone and he's licking the cone and then the ice cream falls off the cone. And he, and he's, you know, he's shocked and, you know, he's very sad about it. And he looks at this, sad little you know blob of ice cream on the ground and then he decides to paint a little smiley face in the ice cream and he paints the smiley face and then he smiles at it satisfied it but then the smiley face melts into a frown and then gets him really you know kind of frustrated and then he builds up a head of steam and then he smashes it uh with his foot and crushes the whole thing and then he and then he took his hat off and there he had a lollipop and he goes takes a lollipop and walks off camera. And that was the whole scene. That was the whole right. movie. Right, right. So it was just really like acting, like I I, I want to sure. get this character to act. And I did it and it worked. Yeah. It worked because <laughs> I got a job. I got <laughs> I got offered a job and it was only me and, and one other person, it was me and Mona Hosbiar. Oh, I remember, I remember Mona. Yeah. Mona yeah, who sure. married Brett Coth. That's um, right. I also yeah, yeah. haven't seen it in I got yeah. a gazillion years. So Mona and I got hired and it was like, again, it was like from the year before when no one got hired and then suddenly, you know, just two of us got hired. And yeah. uh, we went there and it was like, I was, could have been happier. I mean, I was like, really like the golden ticket. I felt like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Like, sure. I, I made it, I'm in, I'm in. But then it was the same kind of roller coaster, this up and down thing. I did a few weeks of study learning how to be an in-betweener, right? Right. But that was like the thing you'd have to do because you'd start, everyone started as an in-betweener. So I learned how to, you know, properly do an in-between. And while I was doing that, they said, we want you to also do some animation also under Eric Larson's guidance. And, you know, I met... At the time, because I was I got to know Joe Ramft, you know, yeah. Joe Rampt, who was such an important figure. Oh my gosh. So many yeah. of us. And Joe, I'd met, I think my first year at CalArts, he came out because he was friends with Bob Seely, again, yeah. Bob Seely. And Joe came out one evening, I think, and said, Um, I'm gonna just look at the students' work and see what, you know, give them give them pointers. And that's how we all met Joe. So Joe would be in the in the in the Lion Lamb room, uh, looking at shots and just giving us his tips and you know, giving us his opinions. Um, but then when I got hired at, uh, to Disney, Joe was also still there and we'd gotten to know each other a little better. And he says, Hey, you know, I'm going to introduce you to some guys who are working on this new project called Roger Rabbit. I was like, okay, fantastic. So we went in uh, and met, uh, Daryl Van Sitters, who mm-hmm. was at the time, the director of the project. Yeah. Mike Giamo, who was yeah. a kind of a storyboard and maybe, maybe a production editor, or maybe just storyboards at the time. And, um, Chris Buck. And yeah. Chris Buck was actually doing animation of this kind of early version. It was not the version of the movie that ultimately got made, but it was this early version. And I met them and Joe was like, you know, it was an interesting thing because, you know, Joe was like, these are like, <laughs> like, these are the really talented people. Yeah, yeah. Not everybody at the studio was as talented. So you'd sort of start to, you know, like, Oh, okay. <laughs> there's, there's like different camps of people and you're like, sure. eh, I'm to get you, you know, get your sea legs and start to, you know, learn your way around. Yeah. So I, I saw Chris actually, I remember I literally like uh, flipping uh, drawings, showing me his scene for Roger Rabbit. And I was like, wow, it was really cool. It was really like very cartoony and very mm-hmm. loose, you know, a lot of squashes and stretch and great, you know, shapes and all this stuff. And I remember, it was nothing like what was going on on the Black Cauldron, which was very stiff, you know? Correct. Black yeah. Cauldron was, you know, uh, um, the characters were all kind of, you know, uh, Milt Call actually came back to the studio to do some character design for the Black Cauldron. Yeah. And Andreas, who is an incredibly talented artist who has done such amazing work, Andreas was very focused, I think, on that style, that Milt Call style. And Andreas was one of the few people that actually could, do it you know could yeah
0: he, i mean he was a huge milk call fan yeah i Still mean
1: is. who is, is, is it i mean again and who is it i mean Mil yeah, call yeah. was the most incredible and milk call mo- mostly because milk call could do anything you know i mean he could do anything he could draw yeah. you know the most realistic characters but he also could do the most cartoon fun mm-hmm. you know uh incredible stuff like in song of the south you know or in uh uh, there's this great animation that he did of the llama in uh, so maybe I don't know if it's Saludos Amigos or one of those one of those films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, hard not to be a fan of Mill Calls. But you know, not everybody was could could do it, could pull it off, and so. But the studio was really in that kind of focused and fixed, you know, style. But it was not being done at the highest level, which is what was part of the frustration. Because you know, you'd sort of go like, oh, you know, it's it's not as good. Hence as the what was stiffness. being done yeah. in the heyday of animation, they're trying to do it, but it's but it's very stiff. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, these guys were doing this Roger Rabbit stuff, which was fun and it had a lot of freedom, and it was a lot more, you know, a lot more friendly to an to a to a um, a less experienced artist, right? We were ki- we were still kids, right? Yeah. So this kind of more cartoony stuff was actually something that was much much more, you know, natural, kind of a natural thing for us to want to gravitate to. And, and so I ended up going to Chris a bit when I was doing my animation test and saying, hey, Chris, what do you think uh, of my animation? And he gave me some pointers. And so, you know, we got to know each other a little bit at that time. Uh, but then I got swept into, after a few weeks, I got swept into the in-between, uh, in-between pool. And the first uh, animator that I worked for was a guy named Phil Nibblink yeah
0: I, <laughs> I know Phil very well. I talk with Phil on a uh, uh, some uh, probably once or twice a year I seem to to chat with Phil yeah I have not honestly it's it's been years it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's
1: it, in fact time. In,
0: in fact I was on a panel with him last year uh and with Joe Hale uh okay. talking about Black cauldron. Joe Hale. Is Joe Hale still? Joe, Joe Hale is st- still alive. He's still with us. He's as uh, sharp as a tack. And uh, uh, we actually had him on the Skull Rock podcast uh, back in, what was it? Uh, uh, October, I yeah. think it was, right, How right. John?
2: Yeah, yeah. We were talking yeah. about uh, your project. Yeah, he's,
0: yeah. He, he's doing terrific. He's in his 90s. I think he's 95 or something. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, talk so- about a guy. I mean, you know, he survived Irojima. In World War II. yeah, really, a, as a Marine, that's and uh, I mean, just incredible stories he had to tell. Uh, anyway, well, we digress there for a second, but <laughs> that's you, okay, that's you're okay. In
1: between, you're in between so the I, black cauldron. <laughs> I was in between for for Phil, but I was kind of in. I was like the low man on the totem pole. So, but he had a, he had a uh, all the people that all the, all the people all everyone that worked for him was a woman, except for me. It was Laureline Weatherly and yeah. Gilda Palanginas and a couple of other people whose names escaped me. Um, maybe Dolly Baker, I can't remember, but uh or uh elise elise pastel uh-huh. um anyway, so i uh, so I was like and i and it seemed like it just went on forever uh, in between this scene this first scene I in between actually was there's a shot of Taryn is the character, I think the Correct. hero yeah Terran. Um, and he's looking in a pool of water and sees his reflection morph into this kind of heroic character with yeah. Beautiful suit of armor and a big flowing cape that's mm-hmm. flapping in the breeze, and that was the first scene that I had to in between, and it was a challenge. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, and it was, and it was not fun, you know. In betweening was it was not a fun job. It was it was very, it was it was very laborious, you know, and
0: uh, and it was, so te- it was tedious. It was tedious, and also working for Phil Nibblink, I mean that that there's uh, you know he's very demanding it's funny because i don't
1: actually i'm not even sure that i did work for phil nibbling i think i worked for one of the girls that worked for phil nibbling yeah okay I, they, so, I think i think they were giving me like yeah i wasn't even because i wasn't doing keys i was just doing in between so i yeah, think sure. the, the the i don't know who it was but somebody could have been learning but it was somebody was doing keys and then just saying okay you know you need to in between this and it was like i it took me like an hour or more to do a single drawing sure Sure. And, you know, so not, it's like, not
0: unheard of though. That That's not unheard of in, 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 animation.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, your day would be like, ah, I did eight drawings, <laughs> eight in-betweens and they were virtually the same drawing. I mean, yeah. Like <laughs> not a lot of difference, but it's like, okay, I did the eight drawings. That was my whole day. And so for me, it was like, God, I, I just, to keep myself sane, I would, I'd, I would draw, like I do it in between and then I would take a break and then I would just have fun. I would just draw something, a character, something mm-hmm. fun, whatever. And I would slip it into the back of the desk. And so some months later I'd gotten to know Brian McEntee pretty well. Yeah. Brian McEntee was working on the, uh, the great mouse detective
3: mm-hmm.
1: for bachelor Baker street. And, uh, Brian McEntee said to me, he says, you know, uh, I understand that they're thinking about bringing on a character designer onto the show and I'm going to recommend you to the directors. And of course it was Ron Clements and John Musker and Dave Michener was also a director and Bernie yeah. Mattinson was the producer. Yeah. And I knew Bernie and Eric Larson were extremely close. I had met Bernie, I think when I did that summer internship briefly. Sure. And um, so I got a call from John Musker like, What an amazing thing. I I knew who John was at the studio. Maybe I didn't been introduced to him, but I didn't know him at all. And so John calls and he goes, hey, uh, you know, Brian wanted me to reach out and, you know, check out your work. And I'm like, OK, he goes, do you have some drawings that you can show? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do, (laughs) because I had a stack of drawings (laughs) that I had done while I was, you know, between in-betweens. And I was like, yeah. So I I grabbed the stack of drawings and I go upstairs and there's Ron and John and probably Bernie and maybe Dave. And they go through and they look at the drawings I had done and they said, thank you for coming by. And I was like, okay. And I go back. And then the next thing I know, I get a call from Ed Hansen, who is the production manager for the whole animation department. Yeah. And Ed says, um, you know, the team from, uh basil wants to bring you on uh as a character designer and so we're gonna let you do that we're gonna let you out of the in-between pool (laughs) and uh and you can go there but i don't want you to get too comfortable because this gig is only going to be a couple months and then you're going to go back to in-between like no problem i'm like happy to do it he was very business-like wasn't he (laughs) I'm like, fantastic. So I, I, I go upstairs, I meet with them and they're like, start drawing the characters. I'm like, this is great. So after a couple months, um, I'm waiting for that call from Ed Hanson, like to call me and pull me back. Uh, and, the call never came.
2: Yay!
3: <laughs> the
1: call never came. So I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think I'm going to have to go back to in I think at some point, and, and so I just stayed on the movie and I stayed as a character designer. Then they said, Hey, you know, uh, now that you've done all these character designs, maybe you should do a little experimental animation. I'm like, Yeah, sure, that's oh, what wow. I'll do. So I started doing that, and then uh, and then I stayed on the project. Um, stayed on the project as an animator. And then eventually, and I, and I was, you know, all of, I think 22 years old at the time, uh, they ended up making me a supervising animator.
0: Yeah. And and you were uh, for, for Basil, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, the main character, Basil, who is the Sherlock Holmes character. Exactly.
1: So I, I became a a supervising animator. And I remember at the time that was when, that's when I first grew a beard. I was like, I got to grow a beard because I just, I'm 22 and I'm, I'm, a, I'm I'm telling these guys who are older than me, like what to do. And I like, look more credible, right? I gotta look older. So I, I grew a beard just to like, you know,
2: fool them, just to fool them. <laughs> that's awesome. This, this is uh, a, that, an amazing so story. Great. I have to say, you know, Rob, it's a, it's great that you had those stack of drawings under your desk because that was <laughs> the perfect opportunity for you to get out of doing those in-betweens. And gosh, what what a great opportunity.
1: It was, you know what I've always heard, you know, cause people say, how do you get in the business and how do you do this? And how do you do that? And you're like, I don't know. I like, it, it is a miracle really that anybody succeeds at this. But somebody said once that, you know, uh, success is preparation meets opportunity. Yes. yes. And that's really yes. true. Yes. So really if, you're, if you're not prepared, then the opportunities pass you by or, the, or, or you can't take advantage of them.
0: They, they never materialize for you. Right. Yeah. You know, which is which is amazing. So you're doing, you you, you become the supervising animator for Basil on uh, The Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. And, and just for our listeners' uh, uh, information, uh, the film was originally called Basil of Baker Street. Uh, and while we were in production, um, uh, Steven Spielberg released a film called uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, which didn't do that well. And uh, as I recall, Jeffrey ran around thinking that they needed to change the name of the film. So it wasn't so associated with uh, the Sherlock Holmes because they thought maybe the Sherlock Holmes association might be the kiss of death or whatever. And and that spawned the famous uh, bogus mem- memo that went around the studio that uh, uh, changed all the classic Disney uh, yes. uh, film names. So Basil Baker Street became the great mouse detective and then the memo said snow white and the seven dwarves would become the uh, young girl and the seven little men and right if you right, remember right. all of that do you, you do know, know who actually wrote that well, well i don't know if we should mention that because i do know and i, I've I never would never publicly would, said who who did that you know, memo. I, I, I gotta think i mean first of all i think <laughs> I,
1: I i gotta think that we're, we're 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 you know far enough away from that Yeah,
0: probably, probably. I think it's time time we reveal. Oh my gosh, let's 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 make it. Who wrote the memo? Who wrote that memo? Rob, go ahead. I'll tell tell
1: you who wrote that memo. Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble, aren't you? No, Um, I'll tell you who wrote that memo. (laughs) A very funny story artist by the name of Ed Gombert. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and and it was a sensation when it, it when it got published because it was done on official company letterhead yes and it said to the animation staff uh it may have been signed peter schneider i think which is why it was raised such a ruckus because i think peter um you know, it, 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 people were sensitive. Let's just say. I mean, I it was, honestly, it was really genuinely the funniest thing that had uh, that anybody had done.
2: Okay, so this was a legit. Uh, and it a certainly legit wasn't
1: w- worthy of really truly being upset about it because it was great comedy. I mean, it was satire and it was that hilarious. Was
0: total satire because because not only were all the like Pinocchio became the little boy uh, who would be right. the, the little wooden boy who would be real and things. Right. And when you got to the Aristocats, the Arist. It was called the Aristocats. And- the Arist- (laughs) (laughs)
2: what a rip oh that was that was funny so
1: i think that i think that and there was kind of a a witch hunt actually as a result of that memo because which is why dave you probably recall that it's you know like if you knew you were kind of sworn to secrecy like well you know let's not get ed in trouble because because it's too damn funny and you know we don't want to see anything bad happen
0: and and, and and it made it up to jeffrey katzenberg's office Totally. Uh, yeah, I mean Jeffrey apparently uh, uh, really ribbed Peter about it, and <laughs> Peter was well, whatever. I don't.
1: I don't know. It's so funny because <laughs> I don't know. I I I have to believe that Peter Schneider at this late date would think it's actually funny. And I think and looking probably,
0: back, he probably would think it was funny. But you know, who knows? Maybe we'll have him on our show at some point in the future, and I'll have to absolutely. ask him. <laughs> I,
2: I have to find out though. Is this the first time this has ever been like? You know, publicly publicly talked could be. about because this of all be. the of all the other interviews I've I've heard, I think this is the first I've ever heard of that, like the the actual person being. Called out okay. yeah,
1: well, I, I mean, hope I haven't destroyed Ed Gombert's career
3: or I, I, his I, 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 th- his I think
0: Rob, I think you're right though. I think that uh that what is it forty thirty years have passed or something think, like that. I you think know, we're I safe. Mean? I think we're okay. You know? I think I think Ed's safe. I think uh, yeah. nothing,
1: nothing. By the way, maybe he'll get a
0: little maybe this will be good for Ed. Maybe people will be like, <laughs> look at Ed with renewed admiration. <laughs> we'll see him on entertainment tonight later this week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The memo revealed. <laughs> I know, really, so, <laughs> that's just fantastic. But uh, you know, from from uh, <laughs> from Great Mouse Detective, though, uh, you you went on to uh, do the sp- you did a bunch of stuff uh, like Sport Goofy and Soccer Mania and amazing stories. And I did not realize you worked on Brave Little Toaster doing character designs. I did, did I you did. leave Disney? I did, briefly. And it was kind of a, a, a big deal
1: because for me, it was, I, you know, I'd, I'd worked so long and so hard and had such a big, you know, sort of ambition and dream about working at Disney. And when I got there, as I said, it was not what i had imagined it would be you know when you looked at the old you know the art of Walt Disney and you saw the you know incredible work that was being done at the studio and kind of like even just some of those movies that were made uh behind the scenes of the Disney studios where it looked so exciting and looked like you know this incredible energy and so many people bustling around and then you got to the studio in the 80s and it was just a sleepy place and it was very a little bit depressing i remember um, also, uh, meeting, you remember Jeff Lynch? I remember meeting Jeff Lynch.
0: Je- Jeff's uh, a very good friend of mine. I, in fact, I, I talk to him regularly and, and I like to tell people that I was the best man at both his weddings. Oh, very good. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. Um,
1: so, uh, so Jeff was one, I think Jeff may have been a I don't remember if he was at CalArts when
0: we were there he might have been um Jeff was a Jeff was a year uh, or two I, actually as I recall when I was at CalArts I met him uh, through somebody else but uh, he, he was had, at the had, studio he had just started working at the studio Got it yeah. so he
1: must have been 2 years ahead of us but then I think yeah. I think that what what the reason I knew Jeff was from reputation because when I got when we got to CalArts in 1980 we heard stories about who got hired. And I think they said, Oh, Jeff Lynch was one of the youngest guys ever to get hired by the studio. Yeah, yeah. So he had this sort of reputation already. I like, I knew his name. I knew who he was just from that story. So when I finally met Jeff, I was like, Oh, that's Jeff Lynch. There he is. There's that guy, uh, that super talented guy that got hired when he was so young. Um, I think that was the story. So then I remember meeting him there in that first year. And again, he was just sort of like, it's not what we all thought it would be. It was like <laughs> what Bob Sealy said was true. You know, it's, it's just depressing. So and then and then I remember Jeff Lynch saying this, which, which is an image that always stuck with me. He just disc- he talked about people in animation um, trying to be successful and described them as a bucket of crabs. And he goes, you know what happens? You're, you're, you're in that bucket of crabs and you're trying to pull yourself out of the bucket. And then the crabs grab you and just pull you right back. <laughs> <laughs> what what a visual that is, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was like, oh my
0: God, so that really that burned a feared thing in my brain. but but little little did we know at that time we were at the beginning of something. yeah you know we we were at this sort of the beginning stages of this Renaissance or this yeah. this you know, second golden age of animation.
1: Yeah, I, there were there were
0: people I recall even then, that had this
1: plan i mean obviously brad bird and jerry reese you know had left the studio and gone up north to work on the spirit which was a project actually i remember going that probably got got this ball rolling with you know you started with uh, brave little toaster so i i uh, got approached by somebody at the studio saying you know it was kind of like a secret thing it was like hey there's this project going on called the spirit are you interested like tell me about it like Brad Bird and Jerry Reese are going to do this movie and it's going to change animation forever. It's going to be, it's going to what? And they are like, Oh my God. And like, and here we are working on the great uh, the uh, black cauldron and I'm like, Oh, which is so depressing. And then there's this great thing going up in San Francisco, which is I'm from the Bay area. So I'm like, Oh my God, this could be amazing. And so they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you their name or I'm going to give them your name. And, and so, so I got a call or maybe I called them and, uh, and they said, yeah, well, you know, we're doing this thing. We'd love to show it to you. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to be up in the, the Bay Area to visit my folks. Uh, and then I got myself up to San Francisco and found their offices and I met Brad and Jerry and it was just the two of them. And they, you know, they were struggling, but, you know, they didn't talk about that so much, but they were like, we're making this movie and it's amazing. And we've got all these incredibly talented people and all these people from Disney are going to leave Disney. As soon as we get going, we got Glenn Keane, we got John Musker, we got blah, 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 blah. And so they showed me a, a, a test, an animation test, and it was amazing. It was so, so cool. It was Will Eisner's The Spirit, Rock to right, Life well. in great character animation. Um, and... And and they showed me that I was like, wow, this is so cool. I'm I'm so excited by it, and I would absolutely jump at the chance to do it, even though it would mean leaving Disney, which was again such a big dream for me. It was like it was very I was very conflicted about it, but still sort of feeling like I'd rather be working on a great project. You know, than just being at the studio, which was, you know, which was exciting and all that. And it was great to be there, but it was a shadow of its former self. It yeah, was yeah. a little bit like walking in the, it was like a little bit like working in the animation museum. Like, okay, I'm working in the animation museum, or I can actually go work at a studio that's exciting and vital and making great stuff.
0: It, um, it, was, it was still, it was still the, we, we were uh, there at the sort of the tail end of that, uh, what would Walt do? sort of uh yeah uh, downer of an atmosphere uh that lasted a good decade after walt passed away yes uh, but i'll tell
1: you i'll tell you the one thing walt wouldn't have done is asked himself what would somebody else do
0: right exactly <laughs> that's what walt would have yeah, done i know <laughs> yeah i mean so, you know, that 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 was the crazy part about it, and now that, that's what was depressing about it right so,
1: so I, I went up north, saw what they were doing. And they also showed me a clip from this other project that they were proposing called The Family Dog. Uh-huh. And the designs had been done by Tim Burton and it was super cool. And so then when I got back uh, to, to the studio uh, sometime later, they said, oh, Brad's doing Family Dog for Spielberg. You know, Amazing Stories has picked up this project. And, and then I got a call from somebody, maybe Brad, who said, Hey, can you pick up some freelance? I was still had my job at Disney. I was like, yeah, sure. So I I went into the studio and saw everybody was there. And it was a lot of guys like Dan Jupe and Kirk Wise was actually working there. And, you know, tons of other CalArts students who had not yet worked at Disney. I think this right. was before they started their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I picked up a couple of scenes, which I did. And, and then again, I can't remember the exact chronology, but at some point, uh, Jerry, who had, you know, I'd also met, um, was getting this project off the ground, The Brave Little Toaster, uh, which was originally a project at the studio, which was being directed by John Lasseter. It was going to be the first uh, computer animated film. Yeah. Uh, And there was this amazing test that Glenn Keane had animated of the camera sort of swooping around the stairs. And, you know, uh, it was actually a test, not for Toaster, but for... um, where the wild things well, are. Where, where the wild things are. Yeah, but it was a kind of a. a somehow, I think John was involved in that because it, it, it
0: was it was computer generated backgrounds uh, or environment with the with the two uh, D character that Glenn had animated. Right, and so yeah. somehow I, I, I was John. Did John was he involved in that? He must have been. Yeah, he, he was involved, involved, involved with it uh, in, in, in some way, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I'm not sure. I don't know if he was directing or not. Right.
1: So anyway, so Brave Little Toaster was a project that Joe Ramft, I think, had worked on while I was at the studio, and and Tom Wilhite, who was kind of you know had a a big job as an executive, left the studio and um, managed to take that project with him, and Gary ended up uh, directing that movie, and I and Joe was on it, who I had become very close to at that point, and said, "Hey Rob, do you want to do you want to work with us?" and It was tough. And I remember I went into Don Hahn's office, who was, you know, kind of the production manager of the studio at the time. And I said, Don, you know, I've got this opportunity, but I'm torn because, you know, it's been such a dream of mine to work at the studio. And Don said, you know what, Rob, you can leave and you can go work on that. And whenever you want your job back, you can just come back.
0: Which is a nice thing to hear. Amazing.
1: Are you kidding? (laughs) I was like, I was, I mean, really, that was like so generous and so incredible. And it, it allowed me to, to, to do that without, you know, feeling like I had made a mistake, you know, like sure, sure. feeling like, well, you know, this could be a, a dead end, right. This could be, have be a terrible choice. Um, but it, it wasn't. And then I was working on that for several months. We were all in Hollywood, uh, on McCadden place, mm-hmm. uh, in this brick, uh, studio. And it was, uh, Jim Byhold was, uh, Oh yeah, uh, doing layout and mm-hmm. um, just a ton of guys: Steve Moore, Kirk Wise, Kevin Lima, uh, just a, you know, really ton of talented people were working on the project. And I was doing the, the character designs. And then it's funny because I had drawn the, the 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 master, you know, the little boy who all the appliances were actually going to to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve Moore, I guess, did the first animation of the character, and because the character had big round glasses. And I think Steve thought he looked a little bit like me. He decided he was gonna animate the character with some of my physical mannerisms. <laughs> and so later in the project, Jerry decided to name the character Rob.
0: <laughs> that's that you had to have been flattered by that. Of course. Yeah. I'm that, a tune. Awesome. I'm a toon. <laughs> so for brave little toaster, you 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 eventually went back to Disney to work on The Little Mermaid.
1: I did. Um, I came back and, you know, and, and then, then it's a little, it, it's a little unclear because there was, there may have been a, a hiatus on The Great Mouse Detective. And I, I think that I did Brave Little Toaster even before Great Mouse Detective actually got started in earnest. That there was a pause that they had, and that
0: this is what well ended up. And more I came more than likely because I remember uh, not having any work on the Great Mouse Detective for something like six or eight months. I think that's uh, what I think yeah. that's what it was. So I think those six
1: months or whatever that time was, yeah, because the movie because Great Mouse was not in production, and I think they hadn't gotten the approval. Um, that was the window. So then I left, and then when I came back, that's when Michael Eisner came in. I think.
0: Um, no, my, Michael was there be, uh, when they put The Great Mouse Detective into production. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Because so I, so they, I'm saying came, was, they came in at the end of Black Cauldron.
1: Right. So, I, so that whatever this hiatus was, I think I yeah. came back. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I, I have to look yeah. at a calendar. But my recollection was that, you know, Eisner came back in 84. Yeah. And then they, you know, eventually moved us off the lot to the uh, you know to glendale to kicked flower this street off. I, I like kicked to, us, like, kicked, like, a, you know, kicked us off lot you know I a lot to aware like to use of glendale. kinder <laughs> words but kicked <laughs> us i think is is appropriate here uh so they kicked <laughs> us off a lot onto flower street and and that's really when great mouse detective got going right, um, right and i was fully on the in the studio at that time so that so i think brave little toaster happened before that for me um and then and then started on great mouse um and then eventually I guess great mouse finished. And the, the, the next project was uh, Oliver and company. Correct. Yeah. And Oliver and company was going on and they said, do you want to be an animator? But at the time I started to develop projects, So I started to develop things that I, I went into the studio and pitched. Yeah. Um. And I was kind of looking for that next step. So um then i uh i think i don't know i said kelly kelly asbury and i uh came up with a concept that we pitched and they bought and they put into development called Tiny the Alligator.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, I remember I remember that. Yeah, the alligator in the sewers. Alligator in the
1: sewers. So yeah. that was Kelly and in my invention and then we yeah. we 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 got it in somehow into development and then the, the the issue at the time was would they allow us to write it. And as you you know, I'm sure you recall, there was this whole thing about, you know, writers, because because Jeffrey came from live action, and and obviously valued, you know, screenwriters, perhaps more than he did animation uh, artists, um, you know, that there was this uneasy kind of thing. And we were like, well, we, you know, we came up with this idea, why don't you let us write it? And it took a long time to convince them finally to let us, but they did. Yeah. Um, And so that was a big kind of watershed moment for us. And then I ended up, Uh, writing a few different things. Uh, Joe Ramft and I wrote a script together for a kind of Prince and the Pauper project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim Houser and I... um, Well, there's a name. Yeah, Tim Houser and I pitched... Did you keep in touch with Tim? uh, You know, I haven't seen Tim in a few years. We we did... Actually, I saw him on Zoom uh, uh, after, you know, Kelly... Past. Yeah. We did sort of a CalArts reunion on Zoom yeah. to, to host yeah. Kelly. Yeah, yeah. So that's the last time I saw him. So not that long ago. But wow. um, but Tim Hauser and I came up with a, a concept for an alternative to the um, Rescuers sequel. Uh-huh. You know, that was kind of a big moment when Jeffrey said, hey, we're going to make a sequel for the first time in the history of the studio. Uh, to an animated film and everybody was a little bit like, oh, you know, a sequel, why don't we do something new? You know, isn't something new. We work so hard on these things and they're yeah. like, you know, they're like diamonds or like, you know, like they're, they're like, so, but, but the studio was convinced that doing sequels was sort of important to the, their business model because it was a franchise. And <laughs> Jeffrey liked to say, you know, and they're like, it's like, we're making, it's like, it's like McDonald's or like, Oh, really? It's like, McDonald's. Uh, wow. Um, so, so, so they said, we're gonna do this rescuer sequel. And so Tim and I got together, we're like, what would we do? And we're like, "Let's. this could be really cool if Bernard and Bianca have to save the world, Like, You know, they in the first movie, they saved Penny, which was good, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, let's make it bigger. So we said, yeah, okay, so let's, so we're gonna set this really in the heart of the Cold War because the Cold War was really going on then. Absolutely. It was the 80s. Yeah. And uh, we said, so this is gonna be about Russia and America brought to the brink of World War III. <laughs> And so we had this idea that the, the, the curator of the Hermitage Museum in Russia is coming to America, to San Francisco, to the de Young Museum with uh, a, uh, an exhibition of artwork. And the curator has a young daughter who's also Russian, and they come with this incredible uh, array of, of artwork. Um, and the curator of the de Young has a young son. So there was an American boy and a Russian girl, and the two of them end up in the museum late one night, after hours, they're not supposed to be there, and the villain, who turns out to be kind of an art collector along the lines of Cruella de Vil, a sort of flamboyant woman character who is determined to, to, uh, to own this special uh, artwork, uh, sends her henchmen in to go steal it, but the kids get caught up in the, in the heist, and the kids get kidnapped. And of course, because one is a Russian and one is American, they start to blame each other. The Americans blame the Russians, the Russians blame the Americans, and this is gonna cause global tensions to escalate unless Bernard and Bianca can come in and save the day and rescue the two of them. Uh, but they decide, and this was part of the brief of that movie, there was going to be a third mouse. And this third mouse was gonna be a rival for Bernard, right, the third mouse. So in the in the movie that got made, it was Crocodile Dundee because they did right. uh, the rescuers down under. But in our version of the movie, we decided that this mouse was going to be a kind of a James Bond character, a very sophisticated character wearing a dinner jacket, drinking martinis. And uh, and so and of course, having all of these incredible gadgets given to him by, you know, the kind of the the same, you know, the Q, the equivalent of Q. Um, And so and of course, because he was so sophisticated, he and Bianca got along and she laughed at all of his witticisms and and Bernard could felt like he couldn't compete. Uh, and so of course the three of them managed to save the day. Bernard proves himself a true hero and bests his rival in Bianca's eyes. And, uh, yeah. and they all live happily ever after and world war three doesn't happen. And that was the script that they actually commissioned from us and rewrote that draft. And I remember being so excited about it and turning it in and then getting the very, you know, sort of disappointing news that they were going to make rescuers down under.
0: Be, they because, were not because crocodile dundee had been such a huge hit i mean yeah. it was a global hit yeah but it's not like james
1: bond wasn't uh right so hit in no, fact no, i, I, I would I, argue I, that yeah. ours was more timeless <laughs> i would argue that doing a james bond mouse would have been more more I, relevant to i today. would not
0: i would not disagree with you rob i would yeah. not disagree with you but on they that. just didn't have our vision what can i say yeah. They just didn't yeah. see it
1: so anyway, but that was kind of the stuff that I started to work on. I was kind of working on a bunch of different things. In fact, one of the crazy things that I did was when they were doing um, Oliver and Company. Uh, Ron Rocha, who worked for Don Hahn, uh, Ron Rocha in the production management uh, division, was also a pianist and composer. And Ron uh, came into my office one day and said, "Hey, you know, they're they're fielding songs." for the movie uh, Oliver and Company. Are you interested in writing a song together? And I said, sure, absolutely. Why not? So after work, we would sit down at the piano and we came up with this concept for a, uh, a villain songs to be sung by Bette Midler. And the song was called Curiosity Killed the Cap. And the idea was, you know, Bette Midler has to, you know, very unhappily... Accept uh, Oliver, the kitten, into her household. that doesn't like her and try, or him, and tries to, you know, tries to get rid of him. And so this song was a kind of a threatening song where, where uh, you know, she she, uh, she sings it at him. And so we wrote the song, and then we called a meeting. We let them know, and they're like, yeah, we'll we'll hear your song. And so we get into the room with George Scribner and Peter Schneider and Mike Gabriel and. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if Pete Young was, I, Pete, I know, died on that movie, but, um,
0: yeah.
1: um, But uh, you know, who else was there? Maybe, I don't know, Roger Allers might've been in that meeting. Um, so we we get up and we like sing this song, Curiosity Killed the Cat, and we finished the song and they're like, thank you very much. You know, we'll let you know. And um, we heard back that they didn't, they weren't going to buy that song. They were going to, uh, do it, go with a different song. And so we're like, Oh, well, you know, it's a good try, you know, whatever. And then Ron comes in my office one more time and he goes, Hey, there's another song that they're looking for. I go, what's that? He goes, it's the song, uh, uh, the girl whose name escapes me sits at the piano with Oliver and she plays this little tune and then it turns into this kind of day in the park, you know, day in New York city. And so we sit down and we wrote a different song. We wrote a new song for this new spot in the movie and there was an, a recording studio in the Flower Street office, which is where Alan Menken was spending most of his time writing the score for The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And, but occasionally it would be empty. I, I think it was originally set up by Kerry Kirkpatrick had kind of put all the, assembled all the equipment for it. And so Ron and I said, okay, we're gonna record a demo for it. So we go in after hours and we're recording, using the recording equipment. And apparently, and this is the story that I heard, is that they were actually doing a story meeting on Oliver while we were in this uh, this uh, recording studio. But that the walls were so thin, the music, yes. the sounds would actually go through the you know the air ducts, and they were doing a story. See, they were actually meeting about the sequence, listening to the song. And they were like, oh, my God, that song would be would be perfect for us. But they thought it was a song being written by the Sherman brothers who had come back to the studio to work on a new project. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, that song would be perfect for us. But it's not for us. It's for something else. And then when we submit it to them and we're like, here's the song we want to submit for your movie. They listen to it. They're like, we love that song. That, that was good company, right? That was good company. And so yeah. they, they bought that song. They said, OK, we're going to buy this from you. And, uh, suddenly they Peter Schneider pulled me to his office and he goes, Rob, uh, you need to hire a lawyer. I go, I do. He goes, yeah, cause we're making a, d- a deal with you. And, uh, we're, I'm not allowed to negotiate this directly with you. It has to go through a lawyer. It's like, who should like, okay, I don't know any lawyers. And he goes, well, I'll tell you something. There's this, uh, lawyer, uh, that Bette Midler used. Um, he's a good guy. Let me, let me, uh, put you in touch with him. And so that's why I ended up hiring him. Uh, And that was, I think, the very first deal I'd ever made with the studio, which was before they started making doing the employment deals.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I
1: actually had a lawyer when I got my first uh, employment agreement, um, which turned out to be a good thing, because this lawyer who worked for Ted (laughs) Mittler, you know, made some very important changes to the contract. Like, well, if Rob is going to uh, go on location uh, more than 300 miles away from the studio. He will fly, you know, first class and have accommodations, first class accommodations yeah. and first class transportation. And they said, yes. So, uh, so later when, um, they asked me, this was after I directed the, the, the first Roger short after the Roger Rabbit movie called Tummy Trouble.
0: It. Yeah. Tommy Trouble. To but in after Florida. I directed the,
1: pardon? down in florida well that was the second one was done in florida first one was done in glendale right like flower street tummy trouble and then roller coaster Roll, roller rabbit, coaster was, rabbit was, gonna, yeah. was in florida yeah. and when they asked me to go to florida to go uh pick up the reins and 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 direct uh roller coaster rabbit um i met with the guy who is then kind of head of personnel and he sort of says here's your travel package right You're, we're gonna fly you coach and i was like Like, I don't know. I said, I think you need to look at my contract. (laughs) The contract is like, we have to fly Rob first class. Like, yeah, what can I do? I don't know. That's right there.
0: (laughs) So they did. But by the way, I I, want to step back for a second because, because I think it's really important. We kind of, you know, went through it really quickly, but you uh, uh, said a couple of things that I think the listeners really need to sort of, li- you know, sort of latch onto. And that is uh, that you went and did these things after hours. You wrote this song with Ron Rocha after hours in the studio, you know, in, in a studio, you used some equipment. You guys took the initiative to do some of these things, like developing Tiny uh, and writing the script. You 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 made your opportunities uh, it in yeah. some respects and i yeah. think it's important for for people to understand that you know these things don't just come and get dropped into your lap you have to go forward and you have to go after them and grab them and say i'm going to go do that you know no nobody came to me and said hey dave uh, write a book uh, i said i'm going to write a book that's how my first book came about i'm going to write a book about roy you know and all yeah. my experiences with roy you know and and it's like if i didn't take that step I, that book wouldn't have been written. Totally. You know? And, and so, you know, I think, you know, a lot of what you were talking about here is very important for people to hear that, you know, you make opportunities for yourself. I, you know, I can't, it's
1: a funny thing. I can't help myself. That's like, yeah, I, I yeah I can't, and I and this is kind of an amazing thing. I, I'm finishing this new film and I'm thinking about what's next and I had an idea. And, you know, I thought, you know, who would I, I want to collaborate on this with somebody. And the first person that came to mind was Kirk wise. I was like, you know what? Cause then Kirk actually came in uh, on, on blazing and, you know, watched the film early, gave us notes. Um, He's, you know, he, he we brought him in to be a voice actor on the thing. And Kirk and I just for the fun of the, you know, the sort of, inside joke of it, end up playing, uh, two characters opposite each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course it's because Kirk and I go back so far. Uh, but then I, I gave Kirk a call the other day and I was like, Hey Kirk, I've got this idea. You want to, you want to get together and talk about it? We're like, sure. So we went to lunch, which was an amazing thing to do after, you know, dealing with the pandemic for a year. And finally both of us are vaccinated and we could actually go meet at lunch and, and, uh, kick around this, this new thing. And uh, and I'm, we were both like super excited about it after the, you know, after we met, cause you're like, wow, that really feels like there's a good idea here. And we feel like we kind of have a good, we're getting a good role on it, but yeah, you know, um, you can either be somebody who sits around waiting for opportunities to come to you, or you can, you know, go out and make them. And the thing is, <clears throat> which people, also may not understand is you got to go up to bat a lot to get a hit you don't get a hit every time and you don't you swing the bat you swing a lot and you miss a lot and uh and you kind of always have to pick yourself up when you have those moments where things that you really like i said i wrote tim and i wrote this script that we thought was terrific and they said they passed you know like you put all of your hopes and dreams into this thing and it's super disappointing. And then you just sort of go, well, I got to keep going, right? I got to go on and don't, you you know, never give up. You do,
0: you keep, you keep moving on. And that's the important thing here because, you know, like you said, going up to bat You using a baseball metaphor, uh, I always tell people you got to throw a lot of stuff against the wall for some of it to stick, you know, and uh, it's the same thing. Yeah. So, so Rob, uh, I know we're running a little bit long here, but uh, I wanted to just touch on the Lion King, but we're going to have to have you back for another session because it's just too much to talk about, yeah. but, but, you know, you know, you're, you're at the studio, you, you contribute to lion, uh to uh, little mermaid uh, you, you do some uh, pre-production develop script development on beauty and the beast, but the lion King was really a troubled project uh, yeah. uh, initially. And there was a lot of people in the animation department that were a lot of animators and artists that were wanting to uh, sort of go, uh, from Aladdin on to Pocahontas, uh, if you recall, uh, but can you give us uh, some impressions of, of how you got involved with Lion King? Sure.
1: Well, I think the backstory is actually kind of, kind of relevant here because, you know, I, I started out as an animator and a character designer and I'd done that and I really wanted to direct. So I started to write as a, as a way to kind of uh, springboard into directing. And then I managed to, to get the Roger Rabbit short, which was the first thing I directed. And then, uh, that led to me going to Florida to direct, uh, rollercoaster rabbit. And it was at that moment that, um, I had a meeting, I think first with Peter Schneider and then with Jeffrey Katzenberg where they said, okay, you know, you're coming to the end of your deal. We would like to discuss your next deal. And what is it that you want? And I said, well, actually, I would really love the opportunity to direct live action. And they said, okay. They said, okay, we can make that happen. So if you sign up for this, you know, long-term Disney animation deal, uh, we'll let you direct something, you know, whether it's a, a feature or not, or it could be a short. And, and it turned out that after Rollercoaster Rabbit, um, they let me direct a, a short for the theme park which was called Mickey's Audition, which was a live action short with incredible cameos of people like Mel Brooks, um, which is where I worked with him the first time. And Angela Lansbury and Michael Eisner was in it. And uh, just, it's a ton of amazing uh, actors, Dom DeLuise. It's just kind of crazy. And even Roy Disney was in it. Actually. I remember, I remember thinking as we were doing this Mickey's Audition thing, I was like, you know, you can't tell the story of Mickey Mouse coming to the Disney studios and becoming discovered which because the show that this was a pre-ride for, a pre-ride show was uh, was an audition show where people would, from the audience would go up and audition, do a movie audition, a screen test. Um, and so I was like, you know, you can't tell the story of Mickey Mouse getting discovered in Hollywood without having Walt Disney in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I called Roy and I said, hey, Roy, I said, you know, everyone knows that you look so much like Walt Disney. Would you be willing to play Walt Disney in this short that we're doing and just come in? It's a short thing at the end. It's basically, you know, once Mickey goes through the audition, you're there to basically offer him, uh, you know, a job. And Roy goes, yeah, I'll do it. It was so exciting. Actually, and, and that, Roy. Was,
2: that,
0: that, that shot, was, uh, Roy was backlit, as I recalled, very, very strongly backlit. So you really got the sense that that was Walt. Totally. He yeah. really
1: looked like him. Yeah. So, you know, doing that short was really super fun. But then afterwards, um, and I can't remember exactly. Okay. So where this happened. So, so uh, whether it was before this, it may have been before, it may have been before this, but um, I was actually up, to, I was, I was being considered to direct uh, the rescuer sequel. Cause I'd written that script and even though they didn't pick that script. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd kind of gone through all my meetings up to meeting with Jeffrey and And Jeffrey said, "How would you feel about directing this movie with other directors?" And I said, "I don't think." And this was, of course, me being young and you know, sort of (laughs) overconfident. Um, And I said, "No, you know, a movie doesn't need more than one director, you know." And he was like, "Okay, well, I appreciate your point of view on that, and we'll let you know." And then, uh, of course, they said, "Uh, "We're going to hire." Mike Gabriel and Handel Butoy, and you're not going to be working on this. Like, oh, and I got a call from Roy and Roy says, don't be too disappointed. You know, keep, you got to keep going. You got to keep getting on the horse. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, I'll keep getting on the horse. So, um, and then a similar thing while I was in Florida working on rollercoaster rabbit, um, after being asked about, you know, what I wanted to do and I mentioned the live action, they said, yeah, but, you know, we'll, we'll do that down the road. And that was fine. Then suddenly they were in a big sea change on Beauty and the Beast. They had the original director was Dick Purdom. Right. And um, I guess there had been a screening for Jeffrey and didn't disaster. go well or it was they felt disaster. like the two, Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was it was a disaster. A, <laughs> I hate using that word, but it was a disaster. So they uh, they decided that they were gonna make a change. And um I was working before because it's very complicated. I was working before I was working on Roller Coaster Rabbit, I was directing the pre-show for Cranium Command right and kirk and gary were working as heads of story on cranium command yeah and then they came to me and said hey we need you to go to florida to pick up the reins on a roller coaster and i said yes and they said to kirk and gary you guys are going to step up and now direct the pre-show for Cranium command Mm -hmm. and so when beauty and the beast had an opening Kirk and gary got uh offered the opportunity to be heads of story yeah and I was in Florida and then I got a call from Peter who said, we're looking for a director for Beauty and the Beast. And I said, well, I had actually written, Tim Houser and I had written an early treatment of Beauty and the Beast. So I was like, well, what is, so tell me about the project. And he goes, well, you know, this is Howard Ashman and Alan Menken are going to do it, obviously coming off the success of Little Mermaid. And I said, well, who's <laughs> like, whose movie is this? And Peter said, it, it's Howard's. I yeah, said, well, oh. yeah. cause I had a, I had a, a take, I had a vision. I was like, sure, like, uh, uh. sure. I had a take on it. I was like, Oh, well, I don't know. I like, is that really what I, you know, and, and again, being young and rather <laughs> overconfident, <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. And, uh, I, I got a call from Glenn Keane who tried to, you know, talk me into it. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And then, because I kind of knew, and so this was also a factor in the decision. I knew that Kirk and Gary were in line to direct it. And I talked to both of them, especially to Kirk, who said that for whatever reason, they weren't committing to them as directors. So I kind of knew that if I, if I said yes, that would have meant stepping over Kirk and Gary. Yeah. Yeah. And I really was like, you know what? I don't, that's not, com- I don't feel good about that. Like, right. I don't want to, both of those reasons, <clears throat> it was like a combination of those two things. It was like, like, I'm not going to step over them to just kind of take this thing on, uh, you know, it, even though it, it can't be, according to Peter, kind of following the, the vision that I may ha- have had for it. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> so I was like, I don't think this is it. This isn't right for me. And, and they said, okay. And then Kirk and Gary got hired, got promoted to direct, And then, then I got back to LA and they said, you know what, Rob, we'd like you to consider being the director of the Roger Rabbit sequel, that there was a live action animation combination sequel in development. And they said, we want you to do that, which to me was like, okay, that's, this is, this was the opportunity I was hoping for. Yeah. I had asked Jeffrey if I could do live action. Mm -hmm. He said, yes they were now offering me a live action movie with animation, which Jeffrey had always said to me because I, because of the shorts I directed, he said, Rob, doesn't matter who's going to direct the movie. You're going to direct the animation on the sequel. When we do it, I was like, okay, great. That's yeah, funny, yeah. fine. Great for me. So I started working on the Roger Rabbit sequel and it was a big struggle. It turned out to be a big, big struggle in development and um, nobody liked the script that we had and nobody liked the script that we started to do, you know, to replace the one that we had and, it just was a very very challenging a very political process which i you know learned a lot about um,
0: yeah. there was a, there was there, there's there's a lot of stakeholders in that project there's a lot of hooks into it and yeah. uh, and, and that's always been the issue with them trying to get a sequel going on, yeah. on Roger Rabbit so
1: I so I was going through all of that and that took more than a year I think of of, of my life you know working on that. I met some amazing people Bob Zittaker and Noni White uh, got it got involved and wrote a draft of that. I would actually met them earlier on a project that another project that right. Kelly and I had developed, which was the Frog Prince yep yeah um, which was the earlier version before you know, uh, the it frog princess, a, yeah, uh, the yeah. princess and the frog princess. Uh, it was a frog prince movie, which was meant to be a kind of, uh, um, princess bride. That was a sort of a princess bride take on the frog prince story. Uh, anyway, so, um, Anyway, so Roger Rabbit came to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. Another another disaster. <laughs> and uh, they decided- I would that, say that was a disaster though. I would say it just well, came to a grinding halt because it came to there a grinding, were a okay, lot of enough. issues.
0: There was a yes, lot of issues. It came there,
1: to a grinding yeah. halt. And then I had a meeting with Jeffrey and he's like- Rob, he literally said this, Rob, you crashed and burned, <laughs> you crashed and burned. My advice to you is to call all the stakeholders, to call everybody, you know, to sort of acquit yourself. Cause I think they felt that, well, there was, it was, it, it was complicated and political. And I, I did some things that in retrospect were not politically savvy. Okay. Um, so he said, you need to kind of, you know acquit yourself with these people. And so I I called them all and they were all super gracious. They were like, Rob, you know, it's okay. I remember talking to David Hoberman who said, Rob, you know, there's this uh, director named Ron Underwood who had a similar kind of terrible thing happen, uh, but he didn't give up. You know, he got back yeah. on the horse and then he directed a massive hit But well, he directed uh, uh, City Slickers.
0: It was a huge hit. And, you know, what listen, all of those things are learning experiences for everybody yeah. and everybody goes through them. So, so that
1: was it. And then of course, at the end of that, I was now depressed in, you know, right. So I just had this massive career failure. And that was right when Beauty and the Beast was coming out to these incredible accolades. They had done this screening of the unfinished film for the uh, New York Film Festival. uh, Uh And, and, you know, it was just this huge celebratory moment in the movie you know, it was the first animated movie to cross a hundred million dollars at the box office. And then they got mm-hmm. nominated for the Academy Award for best picture. Yeah. And I'm like, what have I done? <laughs> I've made such a terrible mistake. And I was actually, I had gone to New York to visit, a, maybe my brother was living in New York and I was gone. I was in New York uh, when the Academy Awards were going on. But before it was like the week or two before that, I got called uh, into Tom Schumacher's office and Tom Schumacher said, Hey Rob, I'm just letting you know, I'm just going to ask whether or not you'd be willing to step into, uh, the, uh, the king of the jungle, which was of course the right. original title of the movie. He yeah, goes, are yeah. you willing? Cause we're having some issues creatively, and we may need to make a personnel change. And would you be interested or willing to, uh, to step in as director? And I said, uh, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> because I was like, uh, yeah, I was like, I'll say yes to anything. And and the thing was, is that I remember having seen some of the artwork. They did an open house in the development department and they had some artwork up for the project. And this was when the project didn't have a great reputation among the artists at the studio. Yeah, yeah. Again, because it was too, I think people felt it was too realistic. It was too too much of a true life adventure kind of a uh, take on it. And, um, and, and and then and it was, it was going to be a challenge for the animators because it was all quadrupeds. Totally. You know? And so um, at the, around that time, I'm, I saw on television just by accident, a documentary called lions and hyenas, the eternal enemies, which was a, a film directed by uh, Derek and Beverly Joubert, who were famous for living in Africa for years and years and photographing yeah. lions and the hyenas and, They have this unbelievable documentary, which I saw, and it was so powerful because it was really a life and death struggle uh, between the lions and the hyenas. And I watched it, I was like, wow, this is so powerful. I was like, it gave me kind of renewed uh, uh, inspiration about Lion King. It was like, wow, you know, if that movie can capture half of this, uh, you know, sort of power, then, you know, maybe there's really, there's an an opportunity to, to turn it into something. Um, And so when Tom said, would you be willing to do it? And I said, yes. And I was in New York for the Academy Awards and Tom called me and said, Rob, you're starting on Monday. And i said, okay, starting on Monday. He goes, there's gonna be a box left at your doorstep at your home in Glendale of stuff, of, of a script written by Linda Wolverton and some character designs and whatever other miscellaneous stuff. And he goes, you know, uh, it'll be there on Sunday night or Sat, whatever. And uh, I was flying from New York that day. So I got home, there was sure this box of material and I took it inside and I went through it. I read the script and I, and I felt very much having read the script. I was like, wow, this is, it is a little too straight. You know, it's a little mm-hmm. serious and it's a little, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really have any, any Disney magic. You know, there was really missing some, some of that, you know? And so the next morning on Monday, which was, happened to be April 1st. So, uh, <laughs> 1992, I walked into the meeting and Don Hahn was there. Roger Allers, of course was there already. And, um, John Carnahan was the editor and the, and mm-hmm. they said, uh, why don't you go take a look? We have 10 minutes of story reel put together. So I sat with John and played the 10 minutes of story reel, which was Simba and Nala at the water hole with Timon and Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa were their childhood friends in the script uh, and and in the storyboards. And then Rafiki came in to talk to Mufasa and Rafiki was kind of described as this elder statesman, very serious. And he was like, Mufasa, we must talk about Scar and, you know, the blah, 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 blah. And it was very straight. It was very straight and very serious and kind of heavy. And, uh, I watched the 10 minutes and then Don and Roger came at, back in and, and I said, and because I didn't know anything, I'm like, I don't know what people expect. You know, I don't really know the ins and outs of what how this got came to be. But I said, what do, what's the studio expecting from us? Like, are we do we have to keep this? And Don said, no, you can start over. It, really? He goes, yeah, you can start over. So we're like, oh, great. Well, why don't we start by having a, a brainstorm to talk about what this movie could be. And we said, great. So let's bring in, we brought in Kirk and Gary, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Brenda Chapman, who was head of story, Mm -hmm. Roger and myself. And I think Don, I can't remember if Don was actually in the room with us or kind of popped in and out of the room. I don't remember that, but still we were in this sort of brain trust thing. And we said, what could this movie be? And we said, this really should be a, a kind of a, it should feel more like a biblical story. It should feel more like Joseph and the amazing tech, you know, jo, not Joseph, but you know, the story of Joseph or, or uh, Moses, you know what I mean? We were looking at these sort of bigger things with these spiritual underpinnings because we were like, there's no, it's too dry. So we, so the, I, I think I may have come in, I don't know if it's an idea floating around the studio earlier, but I said, why don't we have Mufasa who gets killed in the script, in the stampede, why don't we have him come back as a ghost? And we said, yeah, that let's do that. Like that will be, it. and why don't we, let's change Rafiki from being a very serious kind of politician to being kind of a shaman witch doctor who, yeah. you know, lives on the fringes of this society, but he, you know, is a magical character that comes in and blesses Simba. And then, you know, and then we said, let's Timon and Pumba shouldn't be friends of, Uh, uh, Simba Nala's they should be outcast characters that they meet once Simba is exiled into the desert you know exiled into the desert he meets these two characters that are kind of dropouts they well you know they're,
0: they're comedy relief too
1: yeah yeah totally so so that so in two days we reconceive the story reconceive the structure of the movie And they said, okay, uh, we need to do a pitch. We're going to pitch everybody. And so we had Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Roy and Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher and a gallery of people. And we went through and did our presentation. we said, here's the new story. In this opening sequence, we've got the animals coming to pay homage to the newborn prince, et cetera, et cetera. Really had every every scene was there, beat it out. And at the end of the pitch, Michael Eisner looks at us and goes, he goes, what's this based on? We go, well, it's kind of. Not bad, it's an original story. And he goes, Yeah, could it be, couldn't this be something like King Lear? Like maybe it should be King Lear? And we're like, King Lear? Like King Lear's about an aging king with three daughters and two of them are, you know, trying to take over. I'm like, I don't see King Lear in this. And then Maureen Donnelly, who was the producer of The Little Mermaid, says from the back of the gallery of people, She goes, No, it's Hamlet. And everybody goes, oh, It's Hamlet. That's right, it's Hamlet. The, the, the uncle kills his brother, who's the king, and the son has to do something about it. And then Michael Eisner says, that's it. We're making Hamlet with lions. And we go, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that was it. And that was it. Wow. And we, we didn't have to change anything, really. We're just like, now we're making Hamlet with lions. And so from that day to the, to the, to the final story meeting on the project, we were trying to figure out what is the to be or not to be Moment in the movie. What is the to be or not to be moment? And um we sat in this final story session, and Don Hahn says, It should be like this thing where Rafiki picks up some dirt and says, You know, we're all just like dust in the wind. And we're like, Yeah, sort of. And we couldn't quite come up with anything. And then Irene Meckie, who is uh, one of our writers and very funny, she goes, nah she just hit him in the head with a stick. And we all laughed. Like, oh, That's hilarious. And we're like, That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's a great idea. He's going to hit him in the head with a stick, and that's going to be how he learns his lesson. And so that was our very last meeting on that, on that, uh, on the movie. And finally we had our to be or not to be moment. And then what happened even more importantly was Don Hahn came into the office one day and he goes, Hey, guess what? We're going to have a book written called the art of the lion king. And it's going to be written by Christopher Finch.
0: Uh, and so
1: isn't that a, that's amazing. And so we go into a meeting with Christopher Finch and I go, Mr. Finch, I am so honored to meet you. Uh, and he goes, he looks at me and he goes, you know, my nieces, don't you?
0: <laughs>
1: As a matter of fact,
0: that, that, I do. You know, and what? So- what a wonderful, you know, sort of a circle. The circle back. of life. Yeah, It's it, the it circle of really life. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I, I think that's actually a perfect place for us to kind of stop sure. uh, because uh, we've really run over, but it's been fabulous. I mean, <laughs> these are fabulous stories, Robin. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed just sitting here listening to these stories. Uh, it's just great to hear these behind-the-scenes uh uh stories and how how some of these films came together and I I I have to say thank you so much for being on the Skull Rock podcast very happy you uh you
1: invited me and uh and anytime uh you want to you know
0: well, uh, we're gonna we're absolutely gonna have you back because I want to talk Stuart Little, I want to talk the Haunted Mansion, I want to talk Mister Peabody and Sherman. I mean, my gosh, you know, there's there's so much more to talk about. So we will have you back, Rob. Ben I no, promise right? you that. All right. Talk, so thank you very it. much for being on the show. Thank yeah. you for having me. I mean, it's just yeah. been a wonderful uh, you know time to 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 spend with you. Yeah. Absolutely. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's magic kingdom. Skull Rock podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney.
2: Once again, Dave's always great. Always great to have your friends on the show. And uh, wow, what a great, great career. Yeah. You know,
0: Rob, Rob is is really terrific and he's a great speaker. I have to say, you know, he's very articulate, very intelligent guy and uh, some great stories there. Uh, I just uh, enjoy speaking with all of these folks that we're bringing on. And uh, next week, uh, Al John, I'll be on the road again with the mobile Skull Rock Studios.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, that's wonderful, Dave. And I look forward to that. Did you want to talk about some of the guests that are coming up
0: well you know uh next week we've got tom cito uh coming on the show we're looking forward to that tom tom cito's an animator director he was a former union boss of the screen cartoonist guild and uh he's a professor at usc uh film school
2: well that's awesome i can't wait to talk to tom it's going to be an amazing show and and fam you don't ever want to miss a single episode so if you just stumbled upon this show don't forget to like share and subscribe to wherever you find your podcasts as well as uh, social media as well. You can also drop us an email. We encourage that. Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com or Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave, let you have the uh, the final words.
0: Well, as always, John, peace and love to everybody. I hope you go out and have a fantastic week ahead. Uh, and please be kind to people. Uh, as the world opens up, uh, people are anxious to get out there. Just, you know, take your time, uh, and be good to one another. And we'll see you next week.
2: I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves.
3: Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money.
2: Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, adventures by Disney?
3: They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie and theme park fan.
2: I'm Al John Goh. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast.
3: Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more.
2: That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney list podcast, visit thedisneylist.com.
3: I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney podcast. Every week, I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.